we certainly have people's attention, both the retailers and the consumer. And so we just need to not fail them and do what we have been doing since day one, which is, you know, trying to keep it real, be authentic. You know, that's, that's the way that this brand has operated from the beginning. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, the podcast for brands in the health and wellness space who want to be irresistible, not only to consumers, but to investors and retailers. Here we talk to successful entrepreneurs about the inspiring stories that help them start and grow their awesome brands. And we also talk to investors, leaders in private equity, and retail buyers about what makes brands irresistible to them. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I think we have a special treat today because we're talking to Jason Shiver, who is the CEO of Waterloo Sparkling Water, which is one of my favorite brands of sparkling water. And I would imagine that most people are familiar with it at this point, but I'm excited to let Jason tell us the story of the brand in his own words. And and I'd love to hear a little bit about that and, and your background and some of your challenges. So Let's start with thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chrissy. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear the story of Waterloo and how you sort of got from where you are to one of the faster growing brands of sparkling water in an incredibly competitive category. So can you just give us a little bit of background, how you got here, what the story of the brand is? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, at the beginning of this whole thing, we didn't see the competitive nature of the uh, of the category like it is today. I mean, really, it was, you know, a couple of scattered brands and, you know, Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola and doing their Dasani and their Aquafinas. And then you had the, the behemoth in the category at the time, which was LaCroix. And so I won't say which competitive brand we used to have in our refrigerator, um, but there was one in our refrigerator that my, that my wife kind of grew up on it, and I would not drink it. It was just not something that appealed to me. And so I thought, you know, to myself when I was, you know, kind of broached about the opportunity from Clayton Christopher with Kavu, he was one of the uh, original investors, co-founder of Waterloo and Sean Kuzak, which was the guy that kind of had the idea that linked up with Clayton. And so it was back in, you know, call it the summer of 2017. And he, they started talking to me about this opportunity about Waterloo pre-revenue and like really be able to put my own fingerprints on this thing and and bring in, you know, the team that I would want to bring in. And we didn't have some of the ills that you get started with sometimes with uh, entrepreneurs, not that it's a bad thing, but it just requires sometimes some cleanup. So we got to start fresh on this one. That was what was so exciting about it. So I said, if we can do something that appeals to me, and I know how big sparkling water was and how big it was becoming, I just thought, man, if we can do something that I'll drink and that my friends will drink, I think we're on to something. And so we decided as everybody was kind of zigging with the, you know, kind of faintly flavored sparkling waters, I've heard people say, you know, it's like drinking a seltzer water and having somebody whisper a flavor in another room. That was kind of like it was back then. And so we decided that we were just going to go for a bolder flavors, one in which you can tell what it is as soon as you crack the can. And then we wanted to build some pillars around it after reading all of the reviews of all the different brands, like what was it that consumers were looking for? And we heard a lot of, of consumers that were a little you know, scared about the natural flavor element on the back on the ingredient panel. And we also heard some things around BPAs and, and different things like that. A lot of people don't know that aluminum cans have a lining on the inside of them uh, that contain trace elements of BPA. 
And so, you know, we just put our heads together and we say, how, how can we get around the natural flavor thing? It's not so easy to be able to do that unless you're using just like juice concentrate. Um, and we didn't want to go that direction based on the flavor that we felt like we got from that when we were mixing the two. So we did everything non-GMO project verified and BPA free cans. And I can promise you that it was, it was super premium what we were having to pay for that. But we kind of took it on the chin in the early stages to try to get this thing up and off the ground. We were a premium brand, no question, but we're not super premium to the competition that's out there. So when you factor in more flavor, BPA-free, non-GMO project verified, you were coming up with something that was pretty expensive. And we just had to be very creative on how we were going to start to make this thing profitable. So talk a little bit more about the flavor thing, because I think that's interesting. And I don't think, unless you hear you talking at this moment... I'm not sure people know that about Waterloo versus the others, but I love how you described it as, <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that, but the flavor as a whisper from another room, that's really interesting yes. because I think that's true for a lot of seltzers that are out there. You're sort of thinking you might know, but you might not know, and definitely not the case with Waterloo. So do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. And we call it, you know, in our company, it's flavor artistry, right? We have mm -hmm. two guys, you know, that one was a chef previously in his career and he's actually our COO and another guy that had never done flavors before. You know, they have sensitive palates. We learned that early on as we were starting to taste some of the different flavors that we were getting. We also like to have a bigger bubble, by the way, we use carbonation as part of the flavor because it does add a little bit of zip to the flavor itself. So depending on the type of flavor, we might use the carbonation and that car that carbonic burn to um to factor into the flavor uh experience but you know we had these two guys that had never done it before and we decided we were going to take a different approach to flavor flavor for many companies is very transactional you go to a flavor house you say i want a lime they send you 10 different limes you pick one you move forward you know that's a lot of times how how different companies will do this whereas we started getting in lots of different flavors and we built an entire you know, catalog full of different types of flavors. And I won't give away some of the specifics, but I will tell you that I'll use strawberry as an example. It was a, probably over a hundred iterations and many months of us trying to, to perfect that flavor because we will not allow for the flavor to escape our kind of our flavor room without it being perfect. And so it took actually a different flavor other than strawberry to give it its peak in the middle, because we think about it in a lot of different ways. It's the senses of when you open up the can, you smell it, you should know what flavor it is before you even put it up to your mouth. And, and most times you should experience that with our brand. In addition to that, there's also that first hit of the flavor. And then there, it should be a build to kind of that center point. And then there's the finish and you don't want it to linger on the finish. So we're very maniacal about that. And we want to be perfectionists as it pertains to flavor. So it's always kind of our interpretation of the flavor but at the same time, it should be a great experience for anybody that tastes it. So we would build them internally, but using flavor houses to coordinate with us, but we would absolutely build them internally. They're our own flavor profiles. There's nobody else has these flavor profiles. So what are the most popular flavors right now? You know, for us, it's, um, it's black cherry. Uh, mm -hmm. We just launched pineapple that went to uh, kind of the top of the list at, uh, at Whole Foods. We just came off a limited time offer with a product called Summerberry, mm -hmm. uh, which is just kind of a collection of berries that you would uh, that you would normally see in the summertime. We also have flavors like watermelon that have been mainstays for us that are that yeah. are big time flavors. 
And I would say that that's what's different about us because it, as you've heard me kind of list off a few different flavors, you never hear, um, you know, grapefruit or lemon uh, or even lime. We don't even have a lime. We don't have a lemon. We have a lemon lime, but we're just, you know, we are different in that facet. So every time that people would describe us, they would, you know, I would, I would always love to hear consumers try to describe Waterloo or friends try to describe it. And they would just say, it's just different, right? So when we started coming up, you know, this is our first real marketing campaign that we embarked on this year. And, um, and we did, we sip different. That's the, yeah. you know, that's our campaign. And it is true in all facets. I mean, bolder flavors, bigger bubbles. So that's kind of, you know, that's, that's where that was all, all born from. I love that too. Bolder flavors and bigger bubbles. It makes it very clear. Cause I think there are a lot of ways to talk about things. And if you're not specific, mm-hmm. sometimes people, sometimes it's lost because there are so many brands out there. Um, what's your personal favorite? You know, mine changes all the time. Uh-huh. I would say, I would say right now I'm kind of on the summerberry kick with the pineapple kick. Cause I'm still, you know, my mind's still in summer, even though, you know, different parts of the country are now starting to move yeah. you know, closer and closer to fall. But you know, those are the two favorite right now. You know, you can't, you can't lose with black cherry and I even kind of phase in and out with grape as well. So I, I do like the bolder flavors. The yeah. good thing about it is, is that you don't get flavor fatigue. It's not that heavy on the flavors, but it's absolutely satisfying when you want something that has a little bit of uh kick to it. Yeah. So talk about a little bit of the, well, first let's talk about your background. How'd you wind up here? Um, mm-hmm. And then we'll go into where's the brand headed? Yeah. So just my background, I mean, I, I started off, you know, literally just throwing cases of Arizona iced tea in Clearwater, Florida, and, uh, and had the good fortune of working around some, some really good people and, and was promoted into Arizona's kind of corporate team, like their uh, direct sales team and um, national account manager, I guess you would call it. And so I had the good fortune of being able to work directly with Don Voltaggio on, on many occasions and a uh, very bright man. He's brilliant, has a lot of great ideas. And so that just kind of started off there, you know, and it was like the new age beverage wars at the time. It was Sobe going after Arizona iced tea, who was going after Snapple. So that was a good time. I, I kind of moved, you know, from there and into Atkins. So I was at Atkins Nutritionals right at the height of uh, the low carb craze. And so I actually rode that elevator up and rode it back down on the uh, low carb thing and then rode it back up a little bit before after five years and five CEOs, I was ready to kind of take on a different challenge. And I finally, you know, ended up at Skinny Pop Popcorn, working directly with Pam and Andy, the, the founders there. You know, we we stayed with that brand until it was Amplify. We had taken it public and eventually sold it to, to Hershey. But I was the president of Amplify North America. And it was my first time, you know, trying to, you know, manage a business in the public sector. And I would say that, although challenging, probably not my cup of tea, you know, I'd rather stay working with the entrepreneurs or getting early stage and building up businesses. So I had a, I had a lot of fun. I learned a ton. I've been around some great people through the process. And I just decided, you know what, I am wore out after the whole, you know, skinny pop thing. Cause after only a few years, we had done a sale, we had gone public and then, you know, so we fit a lot of stuff into a short period of time and I was just ready for some time off. So started taking some time off. Clayton Christopher had approached me with, 
you know, a couple of different brands that um, at the time I was just like, no, I really want to take a little bit more time off and kind of recharge myself a little bit. And he finally came to me with the Waterloo idea. And that's when we sat down. And as soon as I saw it, I knew it. I was like, this is an emerging category. This brand could be really disruptive. I just felt like there was lots of opportunities in the category. So that's the reason why I jumped into this one earlier than I wanted to, but I'm so happy I did though. You are. Where, where did the name come from? Where does Waterloo come from? Yeah. So Waterloo was the original name of Austin, Texas before it was you know named after Stephen F. Austin. So, so that's where Waterloo comes from. And when you're in Austin, everybody kind of knows it and gets yeah. it outside of Waterloo. <laughs> people stop me all the time. Or are you talking about Waterloo, Iowa, Waterloo, Ontario? So I get a lot of those questions, but it's also a good play on the words too. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. So can you talk a little bit? I mean, I'm sure that it all hasn't been easy. Um, You're making it sound like it is, but I know it never is when you're starting up a brand. So could you talk about some of the challenges that you faced and how you overcame them or overcome them? Yeah. I mean, (laughs) this has been like an action movie. I'm not kidding you. Like literally kind of nonstop, you know, heart gets beating, you know, pretty fast at the, uh, at the beginning of this thing, because we were like, okay, here we go. We've got this product. We've got this idea. And I looked at my COO, who was the first person I had brought into the company. And I said, you know, here's what we need to do. We have to be BPA free. We have to be non-GMO project verified, bolder flavors, and it's got to be a premium brand. It's got to taste beautiful. You've never done flavors before in your life. I need you to do all of that. And oh, by the way, I need you to bring the prices down, right? Versus what had been handed at the very beginning. I said, we got to get these costs down. And and so in the first six months, he was able to achieve all of that. And at the same time, we signed a a major deal with the largest independent bottler in the US, really in the world. And and so that was going to give us the runway that we needed in order to grow. And Mm -hmm. just as we did that, they started to cut the smaller brands off the bottom of their portfolio. And it just got really tenuous at that time because we just came out of the gates. We made this crazy deal with them that we would do over a million cases with them in the first year. And if we didn't, we were going to have to pay a a penalty. And and we absolutely delivered and did over a million cases that first year. We're now a top three brand for them. That was a bold um, move. That seems like a bold yes, move. <laughs> it was definitely a bold move. It was de- they thought we were crazy. They thought we were like cowboys coming in there, you know, with these uh, these different ideas. We just knew how important that was to get that yeah. locked up. But from that point, you know, we were like, okay, we're ready to rock and roll. We've got everything, you know, going in our direction. We got the you know wind at our sails, and you know, all of a sudden, you have a private label launch everywhere because you know the category was exploding. Yeah. It, 2017 and private label just came onto the scene hardcore um, because a lot of people were ignoring sparkling water from a private label standpoint. So they had to get caught up on that first year. So we're like, okay, cool. We weathered the private label storm. We did extremely well. You know, you know, revenues are, you know, farther along than what we had expected. And then we said, okay, we're ready for this next year. So in 2018, all of a sudden it was like, the aha launch and then be, or not the aha, but the bubbly launch and then the aha launch. And then, mm-hmm. you know, the polar national deal with Dr. Yeah. Pepper. And so all of these things from these major multinationals, you know, you've got, you know, Pepsi with their bubble, bubbly brand, you got Coca-Cola with aha, you've got Coca-Cola that, you know, acquires Topo Chico. You've got all of, you've got uh, Dr. Pepper teaming up with polar and you're like, 
my gosh, that leaves really just two independents out there that all we do is sparkling water. We don't ladder up to some sugary yeah. soft drink or candy bar. We, um, this is all we do. So we just said, we are going to set out to just be the best in this particular category. And I can tell you that we've been, we've been beaten and battered by all the big pocketbooks that the major multinationals bring, yeah. right? Um, you know, all of their marketing promises and everything else. We just made sure that we wanted to deliver a better product and just a cooler brand than, you know, kind of these boardroom brands that you were starting to see be born into sparkling water. So I think we were able to effectively achieve that. And now I'm not suggesting that it's easy to any stretch right now, but we certainly have people's attention, both the retailers and the consumer. And so we just need to not fail them and do what we have been doing since day one, which is, you know, trying to keep it real, be authentic. You know, that's, that's the way that this brand has operated from the beginning. I can't get the, the image that I've now created in my head of action movie out from what you said before, because you just described, uh, you described it. If you made it into characters, you guys would be fighting the big guys and the little guys. Right. And every time you can hear in your clear, you start ducking because other things are coming at you. I think that's an amazing story though, um, that you've been able to hang in there and actually become a brand that those guys are, I'm sure worrying about at this point, because they have no choice. I mean, that's, that's who keeps taking the big guys down. And I, I love that because I think that's, that's what makes all of this so interesting and what makes it great to be an entrepreneur. What was the, was there a moment for you? I mean, I know that no one ever feels like they got to their goal because it's always changing, but was there a moment for you where you felt a shift and you were like, okay, we got it. We got this. We're real. This is going somewhere. You know, I, I've always had the good fortune of being around brands that we've been able to scale quickly. And there was always a tipping point where everybody was like, okay, if you don't have it, why don't you have this product? Mm -hmm. Right. We have a, you know, north of a hundred million dollars in revenue, but yet we only have a, a 34, 35 ACB and XAOC. So we have, we have to build out our community. We have to get more brand awareness. We have to get more household penetration because we can see what a small group of people, how they're consuming our product. And we've almost, you know, I've, I've talked to other people out there and they like to share their stories about Waterloo, but they've told me, you guys have entered like cult-like status, you know, for the people that know you and consume you, you are their primary brand. They will mm -hmm. consume you. It's, it's like a, a, a brand that you can crush. Like you can just sit there and and yeah. drink six of them a day. A lot of people tell me they do six plus, you know, cans a day, drink six plus cans a day. But there was no, we still haven't hit the tipping point, you know, which is really where all the retailers are saying, hey, this brand has to be in our sets. If it's not in our sets, it's a big problem. Mm -hmm. And and so I think that we're very close to that because we are having a lot of high level conversations right now. We have a lot of new distribution that's going to be on the ticket for, you know, 2022. And we're certainly, when you start to look at us, you know, head up with a lot of the other major multinational brands that have all the ACB and awareness and everything else, we're beating them in a lot of different markets. So, mm -hmm. um, so it is encouraging. Um, I want to smile, but, you know, there are times where I'm like, okay, I just need to keep my enthusiasm a little bit more subdued until we get over that yeah. final hump. But we're, we're right there as a brand where the retailers are very well aware of us. And, 
and know the performance that we've had, you know, nationally. I wanted to talk a little bit for just a second, just in regards to authenticity, because we yeah. did uh, throw that out there um, before we kind of got off of that. But the one thing that I'm very proud of is the fact that, you know, 70% of our company, you know, we've worked together before. So I've worked with 70% of, of our current company at at least one other stop in my career. Um, some of them, I've, it's been in every stop of my career. And I think what that brings is, is authenticity because you, you've got people around you. They, a brand is kind of born. Um, we don't try to fit a square peg in a round hole. We don't try to come out with a brand and say, okay, this is going to be a cool brand and we're going to market mm -hmm. you know, in this specific way. Yep. The way we've done it is the way that we would like to you know, see it and have it. And then you see kind of the, the uh, culture of our company shine through a brand. And we know when we start to see that word pop up a lot, uh, the authenticity word, we see that a lot from some of our um, you know, consumer studies and stuff like that. So uh, I just wanted to hit on that. I just thought it was important for us. To it is about. important. And it leads me to something really interesting that I wanted to touch on too. So when I talk to retailers and investors, but especially investors and private equity firms and stuff, that the team the management team of the company is one of the most important things. So I'm sure you know this because you're talking about it. When there's dysfunction, that's a turnoff for investors. And when there's yeah. incredible, what you're talking about, authenticity and shared vision, I mean, that's incredibly important to raising capital. And so that leads me to the question of capital. Did you raise capital to scale? Are you in the process of that now? Mm -hmm. Yes, we have on several different occasions. We've raised capital to scale. We have never raised capital to just market until you know last year. Call it mm -hmm. August of last year. We had raised um, a decent amount of capital to be able to really focus in on our on our uh, you know on our marketing this year. You're right. I think you know having consistency and collaboration amongst a management team, people that kind of understand each other because nobody's ego is too big. We try to play to our strengths. Mm -hmm. It means that I might lean in towards sales and marketing more than I lean in towards, you know, call it ops and finance. And my yeah. COO will lean in more towards that. But the left hand always knows what the right hand is doing. Yeah. That's the reason why we can have 40 people right now. We have, I think, 40 or 41 people right now in our company. And the size that we are today we look at other companies of similar size and they have a hundred plus employees. Yeah. Yeah. That's and pretty amazing. Yeah. So we've been able to achieve it with, with less people only because first of all, everybody's an owner in our company. Everybody doesn't matter who it is. They're an owner. If they're inputting orders, they're an owner of our, uh, of our company. They have a voice in our company. And so we don't squelch that voice. We want that, that uh, artistry to kind of shine through a little bit. Yeah. And, um, and so we have a very collaborative team. And the bigger that you get, the harder it is to kind of keep that culture and the harder it is to keep that collaboration. And especially when people are dispersed around the country and you're not able to see each other face to face as much as you used to, it's super important for us because it keeps us nimble. That's the reason why you haven't seen us explode with employees. We can do that. We just don't need it at this point because mm -hmm. we also take a lot of pride in the fact that we service our, our customers better than most out there. I can assure you of that. And at the same time, when people are struggling with aluminum and other things, retailers come to us and they say, you know, as retailers that we've never even done business with will come to us and say, if we bring you in, can you can you support us with 
you know, with inventory? And the answer is absolutely we can. And um, it was, it started from the early days when I told you that we had that, yeah. that agreement and gave us the scale and the runway for us to be able to say and say and do things like that. That must've been incredibly valuable for you during COVID. Oh man. I can't, I mean, COVID, we, nobody had any idea what was going to happen. I you know, know. I, I was terrified because I was like, gosh, this could really be, you know, a negative thing. And unfortunately for some, it was, you know, we got a lot into the small business sector to try to help the small business. There's things that we've done to try to do that because we felt incredibly fortunate that we kind of dodged a bullet. We didn't have a tremendous amount of business in food service because we're still four years old and we're rivaling companies that have been, you know, around for 15 plus years but we still don't have much of a food service business and some of those other uh, like convenience store business yet. That wasn't where our brand was. Our brand just happened to be where, you know, everybody went to when they, when they moved away from restaurants and things like that, and they started eating at home, they started shopping in the traditional marketplaces and online. And so thankfully we were present there and we, we got the benefit of that. Yeah. How did, and I mean, I know a lot of, brands like yours did well during COVID because of the, the increased demand, but a lot of them struggled because of the supply chain issues that it doesn't seem like you guys had as big an issue there. We didn't, we were able to, you know, I would say that we got a little banged up around September because what we said going into that big spike for uh, summer, we said, we're going to build up our inventories. It may sound crazy, but you know, looking at what we've seen in the rearview mirror, we know that, you know, there's an uptick in velocity and we're going to build into that. We knew that there were others that were struggling with aluminum. We knew that, you know, some of the big guys, you know, the Cokes and the Pepsis of the world, a lot of their stuff, their bag and box business, their plastic, their PET business that they had was all moving into aluminum. So they were going to have to make some tough decisions. That might mean pulling promotions. And that also might mean just bowing out of certain customers. Yeah. And so we were there to kind of pick up the pieces for a lot of these customers. We were very proud of that. I would say that we got thin on inventory around September because we had picked up so much yeah. so fast yeah. that um, that we started to you know kind of stumble a bit for about thirty days or forty five days, and then we were back fully uh, you know into business again. But we never ran massive out of stocks or allocation ever last year. Just just some cuts from here to there, but nothing crazy. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, you talked about capital raising for marketing. So you've been doing some marketing. Um, mm-hmm. And how how do you feel that that's going? And how much does data play into how you're going about that? Yeah, so I, I would say, first of all, we brought in, you know, a brilliant CMO that I've worked with in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, she has been a tremendous addition for this company, because I think that in the past, we've had some marketing, but I, I wouldn't call it overly exciting, I guess, because we had such limited funds or so such limited things that we could do. Even this year, you know, we will spend more than we had cumulatively. I always struggle with that word uh, in the years, <laughs> the years leading up to it. So this year, yes, we, we have more money to spend, but we're also, and she will, you know, say this herself, that we're in a test and learn phase, right? Mm-hmm. Like we haven't had a whole lot of dollars to spend in marketing. So what we're doing is, you know, we're, we're doing exactly what a lot of the others are doing. We're trying to do it in a little bit of a different way. Obviously we said different, but we're also doing it in such a way where we're testing and learning and making sure that we're hitting benchmarks or achieving over benchmarks. Now, the good news is, is that we're doubling benchmarks now 
on our marketing and we're getting better at what we're doing. So it's allowing us to think really about doubling down next year on marketing, because this is a brand that is really, really lively. And I've, I've seen it, you know, a couple of times in my career, but I would say that skinny pop comes to mind because skinny pop, we would drop it in pack Northwest. It had never been there and it would sell off the shelves. Mm -hmm. The same kind of phenomena happens with Waterloo and the fact that it hits the shelf. I think we, you know, maybe we look interesting, we, we promote it properly, we do all the blocking and tackling we should do, and it eventually, you know, you, you see very early success with it. And then from there, it's a build on the, on the velocities from there. So I would, I would say that this brand is ripe for some really interesting uh, marketing spend next year as well. Awesome. Um, as we think about wrapping up, I just want to see if you have any advice that you would give to entrepreneurs. It sounds like you've worked with lots of them and been one of them and still are to some degree. I think once you are, you always are. Um, Anything you would say that like you learned this and you shouldn't do it or you should definitely do it. I know there's Mm -hmm. probably a ton. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot you can say, but if I had to sum it up, I would say, first of all, I admire you because it takes a lot of courage to be able to do this. Right. And I think that anybody can be an entrepreneur to some degree. I will tell you that you will also experience, um, you know, learning curves and failures and things like that, that can cost you, you know, maybe some money or even control of your business. The important thing is, is to try to, you know, come up with these great ideas and and entrepreneurs are really the lifeblood of, of everything that we do. Right. I mean, thinking differently and bringing new product concepts to, to fruition, because if not for them, it's not going to be the big guys on many occasions that do it. It's going to be the disruptors that do it. So I would say to those disruptors, just make sure that you bring people along that might be operators that will offset any of the, you know, of the, you know, call it blind spots that you may have going into a business. Like I'm sure lots of people have great CPG food ideas, but it's very daunting to try to enter it without somebody that's an expert standing right next to you. And so whether that be an investment group that has operators on board or an operator themselves that can help you out, I think that that's probably the best way to attack it. That's interesting. That's good advice. And I, I honestly don't think in all the podcasts I've done, I've heard it put quite that way, but I think you do. I, I mean, as I can attest to from my own personal experience, you, you do get a little tunnel visioned and you think you know how things are going to go. And then if you don't have someone talking to you that isn't you. It's hard to get out of that sometimes. Oh, I mean, for sure. I mean, it's just so it can be scary, daunting. It can make you not do it. Yeah. Or if you try to do it and do it alone without somebody that really knows what they're doing or can give you really good advice or have a great advisory board, then I've seen great ideas that turned out to be tremendous brands but the owner didn't even get to or the founder didn't even get to participate in the upside of that business because they lost control of their business, mm-hmm. you know, by raising capital unnecessarily because mm-hmm. they had stepped in too many potholes along the way. So, I would say that there's help out there. We encourage people to be entrepreneurs, um, but you know, try to put some expertise around you. You just mentioned something that I've heard come up a few times, and I'm just wondering what your experience was. You mentioned raising capital and losing control of a brand. What about how important is the kind of capital, like who you're raising it with and where the money's coming from? I think that can be really, really important. I think doing it with people that have done it in the past that show a, a record of success, you know, a lot of people will bootstrap it, angel invested in mm-hmm. the beginning, 
and really get the thing up off and up and off the ground. I will say that money is cheaper if you can do that. Yeah. Um, if you have to raise early on, then you're going to give up a big chunk of your business. If you can bootstrap it, angel invest it, prove concept, and even just a customer, maybe it's several customers, and show some success with the brand and show your vision is you know what your vision is. There are definitely some investors out there that'll go early stage. There's there's investors for almost every stage of a business in the private equity market that you can take a look at. There's also just people that have private wealth that want to that yeah. want to help. Um, there's that too. I, I would suggest those types of people for people that have actually done this before, rather than people that are kind of new to the business. Because I will tell you, the right private equity some can be sharks, but some can be really really helpful in the process. And um, I think that those are all important things. It's like I I want to I want to help all these entrepreneurs that I you know I see coming out because you just want to make sure they get it they they take that and they fulfill the vision that they have for that brand. Yeah. 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 It's hard to know sometimes. I mean, I think you get so excited and you have so much passion for something. Sometimes you miss some of the signs along the way, like maybe these aren't the right people for me, or maybe I don't actually need this right now. Yeah. 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 I mean, exactly. I I think again, if you, you know, proving concept, cheaper cash, right? Like Mm -hmm. a really easy way to say it, meaning that if I want to raise 5 million bucks, I've already proven concept you know, there, I'm only going to have to give up 10% of my business or something like that. Right. Um, as opposed to, you know, very early stages. And now I'm giving up 50% of my business. Everybody's seen shark tank. They kind of yeah. get maybe the yeah, gist yeah. of it, but it's real, it's real life. It is real life. Yeah. So interesting. Anything you'd like to add before we finish up? I mean, I think there's so much good stuff in here and I love the story of the brand and some of the language that you used to describe it. I think it's so great and it really makes you understand what's different about it. So that's really awesome. No, I'm just, I'm very grateful that you gave me the time to talk about Waterloo. It's a passion right now, as you can tell, we, um, we live it every single day and I can tell you how important it is to every single one of the employees. And that's all, you know, I hear this stuff all the time, you know, like talk is cheap when, when you hear this stuff, but when you see it in action and you see people that that genuinely have ownership of a brand and they actually feel like they're a part of this process, um, it's a different experience. And so we're just so grateful to, to have the folks that we do. We've been able to keep them all intact. I know that sounds crazy, but we have. We've been able to keep them all intact. And um, when this thing's said and done, that they will have their fingerprints all over this brand. And, and uh, we're all very proud of it. So. Thanks for allowing me to share that story. Yeah, no, thank you for joining me and and congratulations on all the success. And I mean, the, just the, just keeping all of your employees during the past two years is a tremendous accomplishment and says so much about your commitment to them, which I'm sure they feel. And, you know, when brands are successful, that's that's generally why, because everyone's feeling it and everyone's running in the same direction. And it's nice to see. It's not that it's it's pretty rare, I would say, at this point. Yeah, well, thank you. We're very proud of that. And we're very proud of our employees. And um, there's nobody better. Like, I really, I really feel like we have, we have a very, very solid team. So, um, but it shines through on the brand. And we're very proud of the brand as well. So, so thanks for allowing us to share that again. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much.